be good to yourself, be good to the people around you. Grace during times of suffering and difficulty is so important and it's a season. It it will not last forever. The times where I thought I might just pass out and die, I didn't. I would have just sat and allowed myself to rest more and not beat myself up for sitting and resting. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome, bienvenidos. Before we begin today's episode with two of my most dear friends, please be advised that the contents of this particular episode contain triggers, including infant illness and death, religious faith and God. So if these are topics that you do not wish to listen to, please skip ahead to the next episode or listen to the past episode. Discretion is advised. These topics are sensitive, so please be considerate with your comments. Thank you. Please help me welcome our guests on today's show of Medicine, Marriage, and Money, Dr. Roseanne and Mr. John Scheller. I have known Roseanne for 18 years. We were medical school roomies, bridesmaids, besties, and pretty much friends for life. I met John, oh, in 2013, and of course was a tiny bit suspicious of him at first, but it didn't take long for me to realize what an amazing guy he was and an incredible pair these two made. They are one of the most faithful and loving couples I have come to know in my life, and I am so excited to share their passion and story of their firstborn child, Asher, with you today. (laughs) Thank you for having us. (laughs) It's an honor to be able to share our story with your listeners today. I know we're not your typical guests, but our experience definitely changed our perspectives on marriage, money, and medicine. And we hope that our story of our son will change um, perspectives of your listeners as well, especially if they have had or will have experiences like ours. And I'm also so glad to support my friend. Oh, thank you. And you know what? I don't have typical guests, Roseanne. So we're going to have some lots of different guests this year. And you're Dr. Roseanne and we've got Mr. John Scheller and you guys are the perfect combination to come on. So I want to first start out by asking you the question I ask all my guests. What is your definition of marital interdependence? So I'm going to give you a confusing answer. Um, So we actually... I would say that um, that we don't necessarily feel that we are either dependent or independent of each other in our relationship. So neither. Um, because we actually, we feel that our marriage is bigger than ourselves. It's because of our faith in Christ. And marriage is a symbol of Christ's love for the church. So husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And wives are to respect their husbands, as we all should be submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. 
So really, ultimately, um, we're more dependent on God. And um, though that doesn't make us independent of each other either, because God sees us as one on this earth. Beautiful. And John, I'm sure you agree. Did you have anything to add to that? No, I think Roseanne said it really well. Where two have become one flesh while we're here on earth. And then when we hope to be with the Lord in the next life, uh, yeah, we will be, we won't be one flesh anymore, uh, but we will also still be dependent upon the Lord. Perfect. And tell, tell me a little bit about both of you guys. Who, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing now? So, um, I'm from Mexico, Missouri. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician, and I've been five years into my career in Kansas City, Missouri. And I am from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I have an undergraduate degree in theater and history, and recently completed a Master's of Divinity, which is a pastoral theological degree. And I'm currently a stay-at-home dad. Ah, yes. Full-time dad and full-time supporter of Dr. Roseanne Scheller. Right. Cincinnati, Ohio, where you guys met and fell in love. And I remember theater, history, and Shakespearean plays came into that picture, too. So, yeah, tell tell us about the first time you guys met. Go ahead. It's, <laughs> you're better at telling it. <laughs> we were in a dingy nightclub in the heart of downtown Cincinnati. I was with my older brother. And Roseanne was with her girlfriend. And Roseanne came up to me and asked me if I wanted to dance. And we did. And we just hit it off uh, right there. And uh, later that night, I was trying to play it calm. So I asked her out for coffee or breakfast. And she was like, breakfast? Why not dinner? <laughs> and I, I said, yeah, why not dinner? And so I think uh, maybe 48 hours later, we had our, our first real official date, and yeah, that's how we met. Which I actually tried to cancel because I met him at a club. So, um. But I had, at that point, already told all my friends about this girl I had met, and so when she was trying to cancel on me, I was like, please, everyone's going to ask me tomorrow, just show up. <laughs> just Wasn't it drink. like a 10 p.m. sushi date or something like that? Yeah, it was like late night and I was like, I'm it tired. Was. And he was like, please rally. <laughs> well, because I had just had a show. Yeah, so it was, it was 10 o'clock at night, Yeah, midnight sushi. It was the only place open. So that's where we went. That's perfect. That's perfect. I totally remember Roseanne telling me about that. And then, And then why did you guys fall in love? Well, um, gosh, I don't know if I would say it was even love at first sight. For me, it was like extreme excitement at first sight. I was just so excited to spend any minute moment with John. But John, it was different. Yeah, I, Roseanne uh, could and still does make me laugh. And I also was just so aware of how together she had things. And clearly intelligent and was um, challenging me on my views and some of my positions in a way, though, that wasn't destructive, but really, really caused me to think. And she still does that for me today. And so did you think it was love at first sight? Of course I did. <laughs> and but I knew even after our first date, I knew what I had. And so I was very excited and very nervous because I just thought, man. Don't blow it. (laughs) 
I love that. She challenged you in her views. That's what Roseanne is really good at. And um, and I, I, know I love it that draw, drew you to her because it shows her confidence, right? It does. And tell us, tell us uh, your favorite love story. So I guess I would probably pick her proposal. Um, so when we were dating, John knew pretty early on that he, that he wanted to get married. And I had told him, um, that he needed to meet all my immediate family and all my close friends and we should date at least a year before he proposed. And that he, he, I, I also told him that if he didn't feel like he could do a good proposal, that I could definitely do it for him. (laughs) A challenge accepted. (laughs) And so there was a there was a baptism of her nephews, which the whole family was going to. So I drove 22 hours for a 19 hour stay to meet her whole family. And then there was a and that was probably late summer. And then there was by that October, a wedding, uh, which all of her girlfriends were at. You included Kate. (laughs) And so that was I was like, perfect. So we went to that. I met um, all the friends and the girlfriends and. At the end of that trip, we stopped at her home uh, in Missouri, and I asked her dad for the blessing because I'd already checked off two of the boxes. So I was like, great, we're on our way. And even though I told him a year, he proposed at 11 months. I did. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, so yeah, I, I asked the blessing in, you know, October, end of October, and I proposed. So I had a month with my friends helping me to plan something out. And then by that December, early December, I proposed. And he told me it was a holiday party. So I was super excited. I think you probably remember this, that I wanted to take holiday pictures. So I was like, okay, wear your holiday shirt and it'll be super fun. And um, the night before, John was like, okay, so you're going to come to this holiday party. And I was like, well, I have to work, but I'll come afterwards. And he was like, wait, you have to work? How long? And I was like, well, I don't know. Well, and it, <laughs> I was using an old abandoned church that was connected to these corporate offices that they owned and there were tight time constraints due to security systems and they basically said you got to be out of there by 4 30 p.m oh wow i know and i didn't see anything on roseanne's calendar and so when she dropped that bombshell on me like yeah i'll, I'll get out at work or like 5 30 i i just it destroyed me i i didn't know how to how to you know redeem it so after i dropped her off at her apartment i just started calling all of her friends and colleagues, because we I knew them as well, and said, I don't care what you have to do, you have to get her out of the uh, out of the hospital by three thirty. Um, and so she gets out, and so I've been prepping this place all day with my friends, and I call her, I'm like, Hey, you getting ready? She's like, Well, I got out early, so I decided to come to the mall, so I'm shopping right now, and I'm like, You've got to be kidding me! I'm thinking, like, Why are you trying to destroy your own proposal? <laughs> And so I had a photographer there because I and I wanted to have for myself at least like a, a timeless look. So I didn't have anything festive on. Um, <laughs> but even what you wore, Roseanne, it was a beautiful red dress. So it wasn't Christmassy, but it was more to theme. And so I showed up in a blue shirt, you know, suit, tie. And Roseanne was just flabbergasted that I had nothing festive to wear. So for the 15 minute drive to this church. The whole time she's like, I asked you to wear this shirt. Why wouldn't you just wear this shirt? And I'm sitting here just trying to deflect, thinking, you're going to feel so bad in like 15 minutes. Just just hold on, please. 
And we arrived, we get there. Again, I said, it's it's December. It's an old abandoned church. We get in there and of course it, it looks beautiful. There's candles, there's rose petals leading up to the, I guess what you would call the altar, altar, yeah. altar space uh, from the from the front door. And there's photographers, there's music playing in the background. And, and Roseanne's looking around going, are we the only ones here? I know. I think as I'm as I'm walking her up this aisle to this altar, it's clearly a proposal, and, but I'm like out of shock. And she, yeah, she's just like vomiting out of my. So she's like, "Why is it so cold in here?" And then she said, "Is this like a fake wedding or something?" And I'm just like, "Oh, please stop!" So we finally get to the altar space. I take a knee. I say a few words, and Roseanne's reaction was, "Are you serious? You're serious? Oh my god, yes." <laughs> And that was it. And then we went out for drinks that night. We met up with uh, some friends in Cincinnati and began. And family. <laughs> yeah, I have some family there too. Yeah, and we began planning. Shortly. Oh, and we went to that same club that we met at. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a weekday. We're the only people there <laughs> just was awesome. tearing up the dance floor. Awesome. <laughs> That's perfect. You know, I so many proposal stories are like that because there's so many, so many nerves on, you know, on end, so many so so much anxiety that it's just like leading right up to it. You're just kind of like. Well, it's it's easy to look back on your life and say, oh, that was a defining moment or that was a huge moment where things shifted and changed. So something like a proposal is one of those few moments in life where you know everything's about to change. So yeah, so nerves can be high. And it was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah. I, did, I didn't have to do it. How How did you end up getting out early, Roseanne? Oh, he talked to my colleagues and he, he told them to to tell me the weather was going to get bad and that I should go home early. And it was like not that bad. It was all. a beautiful like, sunny day. Whatever. And they're like, you know what? Weather might get bad. Why don't you just get out of here, Roseanne? It's like, don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> so she goes to the mall. That's perfect. Okay. Well, let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about the reason you guys are here. Asher. And before we get into his medical history and your pregnancy, I want to start out just by talking about who Asher was, what he was like as a baby, his personality, how you remember him. So uh, Asher was our firstborn. And um, I remember before he was born, even before we actually did our 20-week ultrasound, we named him Asher. Um, And it turned out he was exactly what his name means, blessed and happy. He was always so joyful um, amidst all types of struggle and pain that he went through. He was just always a ha- happy, smiling baby. Um, and ev- I mean, every moment of his life, I can't think of a time that he really wasn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. And how, how did things start out? Like, tell us a little bit about when you, what your preg- how your pregnancy was and how you were first alerted this was going to be a different pregnancy and a different child. Sure. Um, so, you know, it started out like a normal pregnancy. We were excited. It was our first pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were ready to be parents. Um, I know I was especially nervous because this was during Zika. Um, so like I was trying to control everything I could, making sure we weren't traveling, controlling a type of foods and products I was using, anything I could control, I tried to. Um, but clearly, you know. When it comes to kids, no one's actually in control of that. Um, I think there's no experience like having a child that makes you realize you don't have control over a situation. I remember the gender reveal. And even at that point, we knew that Asher had uh, a dysplastic kidney. And But 
we weren't too concerned about it. We figured, hey, he still has another one and we each have two. It'll work out. And we found out he was a boy. And I remember having such wild, excited thoughts of, you know, the hikes, the camping trips, the little league games, uh, especially as I had watched all of my siblings with their children, my nieces and nephews. I had an expectation of what it would be like uh, to be a dad. So um, as John said, we saw, they saw some abnormalities on the 20 week ultrasound. So we were sent for kind of a more detailed ultrasound, um, which during that point um, they had started listing abnormalities. You know, they said, Oh, you know, the end of his spine looks a little strange and, Um, his stomach looks kind of small and he has that kidney problem and, um, and kind of after they listed it, um, I remember being like looking at the hyroscopy and being like, is this, is this a bacterial? Um, which some of our listeners may already know about, but it's a congenital disease with multiple midline defects, um, vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheoesophageal, fistula, renal, and limb. Um, for which there's no known cause of. And we found that out prenatally, um, which was good to know um, because then at 29 weeks, my water broke and I was placed on hospitalized bed rest until his birth at 36 weeks. And he actually had all of the defects of bacterial except limb. So he looked completely perfect and normal on the outside, even though he had these really complex abnormalities on the inside, including when we found out when he was born, a cardiac condition, total anomalous polyvenous connection that required him to have multiple surgeries for all of the defects. And I think, you know, I remember when we found out that diagnosis at the ultrasound, we were just in complete shock. Read about people being in shock and, and going through it was numbing. We didn't, we were crying hysterically. We couldn't think straight. Um, I remember walking into it because we had been for a couple of weeks been praying and had our church praying for the, the healing of this kidney. So I, I went into this ultrasound so cocky and arrogant. Uh, and that's something that's really uh, a lot of spiritual change there of thinking, look, we prayed for this. This is going to be just fine. And when she, when the OB guy, high risk OB, started just this laundry list of of issues and and concerns, it was such a sucker punch in the gut, and that's the best way to describe it. It felt like being punched and couldn't breathe. And I remember just sitting there thinking, for Roseanne's sake as well, and just get it together, get it together, get it together, uh, and it took every every fiber to just walk us to the car. And of course, our parents, um, being grandparents and having walked through this so many times before with others, just awaiting a phone call of how it went. And I remember calling my parents and for the first time in my life, the the air to even speak the words just wasn't there. And I remember Roseanne having to speak for me because the words were stuck in my throat. We definitely grieved his diagnosis as soon as we found out about it. And 
in a way, the hospitalization allowed us a lot of time to think about the things that could happen to his life. And actually, a lot of things that I thought about actually did happen to him. But um, it definitely was something that we had to grieve the idea of a healthy child um, and to have a, a normal kind of family experience that we had thought we were going to have. And we we rallied. We, you know, we had the benefit of the church, a strong community of people here in Kansas City, even though we were away from our family, of people wrapping their arms around us uh, physically and not just um, uh, emotionally. And we, you know, we, we said we are going to do everything we can um, to prepare and take care of our son. And then through all this, I know you guys grew, grew in your marriage tremendously as individuals. What would you say that changed or how did this affect your marriage? I mean, I think back on um, our time in the bed rest, it was actually, we joke about it, but it was in a way kind of romantic because <laughs> I was in bed rest and John was there almost the entire day. He only left maybe an hour maximum out of the day. And he was there bed, by my bedside all the time. He slept there. He ate, ate almost all his meals. Sometimes he would go home to shower. Sometimes he wouldn't, you know. Um, so we really we became really close um, during that period of time when we were thinking about and anticipating um, the birth of Asher. Um, and so I, I feel like that time was a time that we not only deepened our relationship with each other, but also deepened our faith going into it before, you know, Asher's life and all that happened after that. We definitely took the journey together and no one else really knew how we felt um, except each other. Right. Because you were on bed rest for, for a long time. Seven weeks. Yeah. 29 to 36 weeks. And then... Explain to us a little bit about the birth and what happened, you know, a, a little more about Asher's journey when he was born. Sure. So um, Asher um, spent almost nearly six months, of which was his whole life, in the hospital. Um, he had seven surgeries. He spent almost all of that time in the hospital with him. And he actually ultimately died from the complications of his heart condition um, called pulmonary vein vein stenosis, for which we were actually told by specialists that focused in that disease process that no matter what interventions we would give him, he would more than likely die. So we actually took him home on palliative care, and um, he actually died in my arms while we were praying for him with my family and our pastor. You know, it... Palliative care is a difficult choice to make, but it was definitely the right choice to make for Asher. We definitely encourage people to think about it because uh, it allowed us to be with him in our home and to die naturally with us. And and when this happened, you know, I see people lose loved ones, you know, and I, at this point in my life, I don't think I'd ever really had anybody so close to me who had gone through the death of somebody so young, you know, their child. But I had seen multiple of my family members pass away who were older or um, aunts who had their mother pass away. And they went through this grieving process of anger and resentment and uh, anger at God, actually. How, you know, 
Is this something you experienced? How was the? How did you to grieve? I appreciate that question. So throughout, oh, I would say throughout Asher's life, we never stopped praying. But I remember every time we would pray for one of his abnormalities, it would get worse. You know, we we'd pray it would be something short, it'd be long. You know, we, it was constantly the opposite to the point where I felt like I was superstitiously jinxing it by praying. And I remember at one point we were in Boston then. We thought we'd be taking Asher home to our apartment that we had there for the that weekend. And that I think it was that Friday he just crashed his, we didn't know at the time, but his pulmonary veins were shutting off. And I remember going to the, the bathroom, which I just call sob stalls there. Cause that's, it's the only place you can go for privacy and just feeling so defeated, so abandoned. And I remember as I was praying to God thinking, I know you exist. I've, I know that, but that's as close as we are right now. And that's all I know. So you have that moment then contrasted with when Asher was actively dying at our house and the overwhelming sense of peace and comfort that was palpable within our within our house. I would say I, I grew in my especially my as you talked about anger with God. Yes, I was angry. But I also grew in that relationship in knowing that I was not abandoned, as was evidenced to me by his overwhelming presence as Asher died in our arms. And our, you know, our parents were there. Our pastor was there. Uh, no one fought. No one. There was no tension. And we, we prayed. We sang hymns. We talked about each how much we loved Asher. And he died. And of course, there's shock at that moment. But I remember even in the following days, preparing the eulogy, having so much peace and so much comfort that I can only attribute to God's Holy Spirit in the presence of him. And so I think the growth there is knowing that even in the moments of feeling abandoned, knowing I'm not. Yeah, I I definitely echo. I mean, John and I had different times when we were down. Um, When I was down, he was up and he would be helping me. And when he was down, I was up. And it was just, it's kind of how... We feel that God helped us support each other during it. Um, But I definitely know that there were times where I felt like I wouldn't be able to go on, like that I would just collapse and die because I couldn't couldn't handle it. You know, after he was born, he had to have a surgery and he didn't do so well after that surgery. And it was just our new beautiful baby boy was now all hooked up to wires and was swollen and cut and bruised. And I just, I thought I was going to die. I really did. And 
this sense of strength came over me that I knew it wasn't my own. And I felt that a lot during his journey in the hospital. There were plenty of times where, you know, John talked about the experience of getting bad news and getting sucker punched. It it happened all the time. <laughs> it happened all the time. And um, the times where I definitely didn't feel like I could go on, the strength that supported me from God came over me. And, you know, we definitely learned that when we try to force God's hand and ask for what we wanted and have our will be done, um, we found ourselves upset um, because we couldn't accept what God's will was. And God knew what his plan for God for Asher was before he was born. So, you know, I think that I never in my life had I have I ever been through something so difficult, but I have never felt the presence of God so much. When Asher died, I he was struggling to breathe because his veins were closing down. He was basically air hungry. He couldn't get any oxygen to his lungs. Mm, suffocating, suffocating, yeah. And, you know, he started looking uncomfortable and I remember looking down at him and, and saying that, you know, to to just let God take him, to let God take you. You don't have to fight anymore. And in that moment, I, I felt his body relax and I felt like he went somewhere. And I felt comforted in the most painful time of anyone's life to lose a child. But God knows that more than anyone because he gave up his son for us. And definitely, like John said, the days to weeks to months later, we never felt such comfort in our lives as we did then. And the growth there for both of us in terms of our relationship with God was we were always hoping that he would just bless whatever we wanted to do if we thought it was good. But sometimes that's not necessarily within his will. And he doesn't promise an easy, comfortable road, but he does promise for those who love him that it will all work for good and that we, regardless of the circumstance, that we trust in that. And we've already, even in the three, almost four years, seen good occur. Not that I'm saying that I think my son's death was good, but the Lord will use tragic situations. He won't let suffering be without purpose. And that's a great comfort. He won't let suffering be without purpose. That is, yeah, that's deep. And that's something not, not everybody maybe ever comprehends. What would you say to somebody going through something similar right now with a very sick child, well, particularly a very sick, ill child, how would you even begin to, to comfort them? So um, you obviously know that I have reached out to someone. Um, and I, I feel called to do that um, a lot since Asher, uh, because I think that there is, unfortunately, a uh, a bond that is made through people that have gone through experiences like this. And 
there's a sense of understanding. But I think, you know, when I think back about our journey, there's just so many things that I, I wish I could have told myself <laughs> before we went through it. Um, and, you know, wh- one of the things I would even start thinking about telling people is trying not to worry too much. You know, it, it doesn't change anything and it only takes away from the moments that you have with your loved one or child. Um, you know, I, I think that family and friends obviously want to support. So getting that support is important, but also not being afraid to ask for space when you need it, because there's plenty of times when, especially for John, where he needed space and had a hard time asking for that space, because it's a lot to, a lot to process, a lot of emotions, um, being in the hospital myself uh, versus being in the hospital with my child were totally different experiences. For myself, I could I felt like I could cope with things easier because I felt more in control of my own self. Uh, when it's your child, you it feels like things are much more out of control and that you don't, that people are telling you what has to happen. Um, But, you know, you still have to advocate for your child and not be afraid to ask for, ask questions and voice your concerns. Uh, And I think that like we talked about the hearing bad news is that, you know, when you're hearing really important information, you really need someone there to help you as well because you don't always hear it. I think some of the biggest things uh, I try to make sure that people understand is that, you know, be good to yourself, be good to the people around you. Grace during times of suffering and difficulty is so important and it's a season. It, it will not last forever. The times where I thought I might just pass out and die, I didn't. And I'm here today and able to talk about it. And, you know, now on the other side of it with two healthy boys, we can understand it in a totally different light um, when it felt like it would never end. So, you know, I I always laugh in a way in saying this, but my motto during our hospitalized bed rest and our time with Asher was always plan for the worst, which is such an emergency medicine physician kind of thing to think. Hope for the best because really – Worrying about all the bad things that could happen doesn't help. And you should always be hopeful for the best thing for your child because that's what we all want as a parent. But ultimately, we just have to see what God has planned for us. And and regardless of if it being what we want or not, it is, as God, John said, it's for good. Um, we might not see it right away, but I know, like John had said, I see the good that Asher brought to our lives and many of the people's lives that he touched. And I would always, depending on who I'm speaking with and where they are in their life, but if I'm speaking to, let's say, a believer in Christ, to remind them that your your child's congenital medical condition, or whatever it may be, is not your fault. The reason there are 
babies born sick is because of a broken creation, which we are taught and learn about in Genesis. So many times when you're caught in those moments, you can think, is God punishing my child for maybe something I did? And you have to know it's broken creation. And though God can miraculously heal, sometimes he doesn't. But he will use it for good. And he will not forsake you in that. And I will say, even though we're talking about a lot of the difficult times we had in the hospital, we had a lot of joyful times too. There Now we look back on our journey with Asher, we mainly remember the positive experiences we had. And maybe early on that wasn't the case. Um, but now we look back and we, we count it all as blessing. There was just so many good memories of Asher and our marriage, um, being the first family that we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Some of the best food I ate was in Boston. <laughs> I remember so that. We... Every night, every night, I was, Roseanne, we have a $10,000 a night babysitter. It's terrible. Let's, let's, let's live it up until we're here at 5 a.m. and there's another disaster. Let's go for it. And we did. It was glorious. We did take time for ourselves. Oh, it was so much fun in that, you know, I think what made it so much more fun was because of the contrast of the day. The days were so difficult, so long, so trying that to go out and and enjoy a good meal, it tasted all the sweeter. But we did have a lot of fun. Yeah. And we, I mean, (laughs) there was a point in time where we had him in an apartment in Boston and there was a, you know, a week in, in Kansas City that we had him home. And those were just such sweet memories of, of time of being a family, uh, even though it wasn't a, uh, typical, uh, family experience. They were really wonderful and um, I wouldn't change them. I remember our strict schedule when you were on bed rest because for as many people now know, being in quarantine and isolation, having a schedule is so helpful in the day and we wouldn't allow ourselves any movies or TV until the evening and we would watch like maybe two hours of Netflix but man, was that wonderful. <laughs> and just, you know, the, the anticipation of oh, Netflix night. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you guys made time for each other, for yourselves to just kind of decompress. We did. And it made all the difference. And then on the other side of things, your, your friends and your family who, who either supported or didn't support you through this time. You know, tell us maybe a little bit how that felt and what advice, because there's a lot more, you know, supporters or people out there not going through these times personally, but maybe who have friends, who have, you know, sick children or sick family members. And I know for me personally, it was very, very hard. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I felt very guilty for being pregnant you know, at the time that this was, you were going through this. And uh, I just didn't know. And what would you, what would you tell somebody like me, you know, if you had to turn back time four years? I think 
that first, you know, saying something, I, I know that the experience can make you feel frozen because you're so afraid to say something that might be hurtful or offensive or to add to their pain. Um, but not acknowledging kind of what's going on is its own kind of hurtful. Um, the silence is hurtful. Um, so being able to say something, it, it, whether it be just that, hey, I'm thinking about you. This is really hard. You know, I'm praying for you. Um, check and see how they're doing. You know, how's your day today? What did you What did you do for whatever it may be, like the holidays or whatnot? See what they're doing. See how they're doing. Just check in. And, you know, I think that sometimes, you know, you really want to do something for them. And, you know, some people are able to say, this is what I need. Can you do this? Um and that can obviously change depending on what's going on. Um, but if you can anticipate their needs, sometimes it's best better to do something, um, whether it just be sending a gift card to something, uh, setting up a meal train, whatever it may be, just something to show that you're anticipating that this is difficult and that they don't have to figure out um, what to do, what you can do for them. You can say, hey, I thought maybe you might want to get some ice cream on me. Here's, here's a gift card for that. So I think that that's helpful. And yeah, um, I think for John and I, we've always been very open about our experience with Asher. Um, part of the reason why we're comfortable talking about it right now. Um, but a lot of people aren't necessarily. So I think trying to Find out, you know, how would you want to talk about your child? Um, is it okay if I talk, ask you every day? Or is it okay if I check in with you every week? Um, I know that, you know, especially for someone that has lost someone, um, it's, it's important to be able to check on them during anniversaries, birthdays, memorial days, holidays. Those are times where um, it can be especially difficult and early on um, during a difficult period of time, whether it be someone has just gotten sick or someone has just lost someone, you get a lot of support. Um, but months to years later, you don't hear anything anymore. Um, so what we've done for people uh, that we know, we've actually even set alarm clocks in our calendars. Hey, check on this person on that day for X, Y, and Z reason. Um, there are people that we know would take that kind of response differently because um, they're a little more private. But there are other people that want to kind of celebrate in a different way. And I think that's, you know, everyone's very different on how they grieve in those situations. But uh, starting the dialogue, starting the conversation is uh, the most important part. Do you have any thoughts, John? I think you covered it very well. <laughs> no, that was beautiful. I mean, yeah, start the dialogue because it may be uncomfortable for the other person, you know, for your friend, for your family who's trying to support you, but it's way, way more uncomfortable for, for you, you know, going way more painful. So we at least have the obligation as your friend to start the dialogue. I love how you said you set alarm on your calendar. So 
no matter what's happening in your life or how busy you get, you know, you remember, hey, I need to check in on my friend. I need to check on and see how she's doing on, on his birthday, on the anniversary of his death. And then returning to work, because I know you returned to work pretty soon after Asher's death. Yeah, I, I went both. to both. <laughs> That's right. I, uh, while he was in the hospital, I went back to work some to kind of save up some time for later. As a pediatric ER physician, which is already hard. Yes. Um, so I did that. And then, yeah, after he passed as well. But, you know, it was while he was in the hospital, it was definitely difficult, but not unbearable. I think that a lot of times during a child, you're so focused on the task at hand that you don't realize how difficult it really was until that moment has passed. Um, I, you know, just recently talked to a friend and they're like, I, after leaving the hospital, I realized I had post-traumatic stress about it. Um, but at the time I had no idea. Um, and at the time I also knew I had to do whatever I had to do for my child. And as any parent that has a sick child, no matter what degree of sick, you know, I, I understand that being in the emergency department, no matter what degree of sick you wish you could gladly take their place. So working was a small act of service compared to me wishing that I could do any of that for him. It was definitely harder going back to work after Asher passed, though. It was just hard to know how to handle my own emotions, how to talk about it. I wanted to be able to share with certain patients about uh, my experiences, but I didn't know all the time, which patients to share it with. And there were times where it was really emotionally damaging for me. Um, but there were other times where it was really fruitful and um, really supportive for the parent. So, you know, I'm glad as a physician that I've been through these experiences because I do think that it makes me um, more empathetic and a better physician for those families uh, but it is difficult. It, it does uh, tug at my heartstrings when I see a child with congenital heart disease and, and know exactly what that feels like and know how that, that parent worries for their child and know the potential of what, what it's like if they don't have a long life. And something else that came to my mind as you were discussing that, the going back to work, the extreme awkwardness interacting with people whom I hadn't talked with since bef you know, since before when Asher was born since bed rest. And all of a sudden here I was again and trying to be reintroduced into conversations. It was very, very difficult. And the thing, and I don't know if we, we haven't talked too much about grief and what it does and I remember the just being completely debilitated where I could stare out a window for an hour at a time and just not move. And if you as a listener are experiencing that, that's okay. Give yourself the room to feel that and to not put the pressure on yourself thinking, I need to do something with my life. I need to be active. I need to get moving again. 
there's a time for that and there's a time not for it. And so be patient and especially with your spouse because you'll be riding in different waves of grief. And I just know that I made mistakes of just wanting to do something and wanting to take off and go help a friend or whatever it may be in very illy, poor, uh, poorly timed moments when you really needed me. And so if I could have done something different, I would have, I would have just sat and allowed myself to rest more and not beat myself up for sitting and resting. It's a good point. I think that grief takes longer for the person that's going through it as well as it seems long for the people that are surrounding that person trying to comfort them. It's a it's a long process and like you talked about with the waves at first you feel like you are being pounded by waves of grief. Everything reminds you of your grief and you're drowning in it. And to do anything beyond that, it, it feels completely out of where you are. You're in a totally different situation and it's hard for you to even be in another situation. But as time goes on, those waves happen less frequently, less strong of waves. Sometimes now we find ourselves just completely being unexpectedly hit by a wave. Um, but now we're more experienced in recognizing grief for what it is, and we can ride it or get overpowered by it and still get through it. And support each other better exactly. when it happens. And I remember even the, maybe even that first year, we just avoided any kind of public outing where there might be new people because of the questions of, do you have any kids? And having to unpack that again and again. So we'd only go to barbecues or whatever it would be where we knew people who knew us and knew about Asher. So it was hard for us because we're also very, very honest people. So it's, it's hard for me to answer a question of, you know, how many children have you had? You know, exactly. <laughs> two at home and one in heaven. Gideon was born. I felt like in, him being, you know, the only child with me, people would always ask, was well, he your first? And I'd have to sit there and gauge, like, how, I mean, do I have the five minutes right now? <laughs> or just be like, no, I had a son die. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, like, how do you, like, what do you, how do I respond to this that still honors Asher, but not blow this person off? Always complicated. And I have started asking people how many children you, you have at home to kind of maybe be more specific and let people answer things the way they want to. But exactly. Yeah, you bring up some great points. I mean, just allowing yourself to rest and grieve. And it's not like there's a magical amount of weeks or months, you know, that it takes. And for anybody else who's never experienced this, or maybe who has experienced something like this in their own way, nobody can say, hey, it's time to move on. Because, And I will say, and Kate, you mentioned this earlier, of you know, feelings of anger and, and this grieving process. We certainly experienced that in terms of um, experiences at hospital, uh, hospitals, or if we had done this differently, 
would the outcome have been different? And playing that dangerous game in our mind and in our hearts. But I don't recall us ever having anger towards each other in the decisions we made. And I think one of the most important attributes of our marriage during that time was that we agreed with each other and were on the same page and had the same views when it regarded Asher's treatments. And I even remember thinking, you know, take for one example, palliative care. What if we had disagreed on that? You know, what if one spouse wanted to do everything possible and the other spouse was had some hesitation towards that? That is a that's a situation that happens and that, that can be very, very difficult. And I think our our shared worldview as informed by Holy Scripture helped us immensely. We were definitely blessed by that aspect of our marriage and Definitely when it comes to situations like this, I mean, we had heard after Asher died that tons of people get divorced. 95% is what Something someone like told that. us. I don't know. So yeah. I, I've never checked we that never stat, checked. but that's what someone told us. And we were, we were like, oh, wow, 95%. After a child dies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, we had met people that had gotten divorced after losing children. So uh, we knew that it was very real, but um, how we felt about our marriage and our time during that with each other, I don't think we really had concerns for our marriage. No. And and have we've we've covered so much. I I am so honored and blessed to have you guys on my show to come and just talk about these really difficult, really, really difficult topics. And and share Asher's story and his journey. And that he will always live on in our hearts. Is there anything else? Any any pieces of advice we haven't you haven't already shared? Anything else you want to leave our listeners today? Well, for us, um, you know, our faith is the cornerstone to our marriage and our lives. And you know, it, it says in the Bible in Philippians four thirteen that I can do all things through Christ, and that was the situation for us and we know that life is full of suffering like john said it's a broken world and i don't doubt that i will suffer again in this life um but i hope and i hope this for you and our listeners that can try to see the joy through those sufferings and um kind of all is blessing blessing as an opportunity to grow um and to grow closer to God. So that's that's what I would say. What about you, John? I think you said it perfectly. <laughs> and if any of the members of our audience would reach out to you, talk to you about maybe their journey or about yours, where can they find you? So you can't get hold of John. He's... <laughs> John is just not exist. He's, He's online. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I have a cell phone number. (laughs) But I am on Facebook. I I technically am John and Roseanne. Wait, no, it's I'm Roseanne and John Scheller. Um, Roseanne's my Facebook manager. (laughs) Yeah, you're like like Roseanne John Scheller's. Yes, Roseanne John Scheller. So if anyone wants to ask about our journey, um, 
our faith, uh, them going through their own uh, journey. We are always willing to talk and help in any way we can. Thank you so much, you guys. It's so special. Thank you too, Kay. We love this and we love you for offering to be able to share our story. And um, It's very generous of you. Oh, no, 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 no. It's generous of you. I would like to extend an extra special thank you straight from the heart to my dear friends, Roseanne and John Scheller. With that, I'd like to share my four take-home points from the Schellers. Number one, if you have faith, there will be no suffering without purpose. Oh my, when John said, when he said this, I got chills. I mean, the depth of that statement is incredible. If you have faith, there will be no suffering without purpose. And I personally have not lived through such an experience as they have with Asher. But hearing this from his mouth was so moving. To me, it means that every struggle, every fail, every catastrophe we go through in life, we can still have faith in knowing that we will come out stronger and a better person a better physician, parent, friend, whatever it may be, on the other side. I want to thank you, John, for sharing that with us today. Number two, worry only takes away the minutes you have in the present time. When we spend our time worrying or anxious over whatever small or huge thing we are going through in our life. It is important to remember we are choosing worry over any other emotion which could be available to us in that moment. Recognize that feeling worry or anxiety is normal. It's human and it's okay. And once you recognize this, you have the power to choose to stay in that feeling if that's what you need, or to choose a different feeling, maybe curiosity, love, hope, or faith, only when you are ready. Because remember, we are each on our own path and our own timeline, and no one can take that from us. Number three, be good to yourself. Be good to the people around you. It's grace during times of suffering and difficulty that are so important. It's a season. It will not last forever. Number four, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Said like a true pediatric emergency physician. If you plan for the worst, as Dr. Scheller points out, you can handle anything. Yet if you hope for the best, you can maintain the ability to keep your mind somewhere peaceful. So with that, 
I'd like to make a very, very short wrap up. Thank you so much for listening to their story. This is the most sensitive story I've shared with you yet. So I trust that any comments received here or on social media will be made intentionally with grace and very purposefully. And I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing this episode with people who may be going through similar times. We have friends who are going through the illness of a child if they're ready. Remember, this is very sensitive subject and not everybody is ready to hear this story or share it. I hope you walk away asking yourself, when it comes to raising or caring for my children, how in control am I? What could I be choosing to do with my mental space instead of worrying? Do I ask for space when I need it? How can I do this? What helps me get through difficult times? Is it faith? love, my spouse, a schedule. When I am in uncomfortable situations, particularly one of suffering and pain for someone else, when I am in an uncomfortable situation myself because someone else is suffering or someone else is in pain, which is making me uncomfortable because of my thoughts, How can I start the dialogue despite my own discomfort? And lastly, can I see the joy through my suffering? And that is it, my friends. I appreciate you listening to this very, very, very special episode about Asher. I want you to go spread your wings, spread love, joy, faith, So much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.